0: This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by our annual Thanksgiving feast. Franklin, it's been a year since our last Thanksgiving podcast. It's been a busy year. That's what... It's been a busy year. But you know who was not on our Thanksgiving podcast last year to tell us about his assault on the buffet table? was the one, the only, Carson Chandler.
1: Well, we wanted to keep it to half an hour, Joe. Well... I could talk a lot about Thanksgiving. I mean, no
0: Carson, in an hour and a half
1: or less, can you tell us your three favorite
0: things on Thanksgiving?
1: Number one, and they're... There's not even close. Right, not even close. The number one item on Thanksgiving is is mashed potatoes. Really just finely whipped mashed potatoes with turkey gravy. You get it once a year. The real gravy. Finally finally whipped it up
2: enough now that you can suck it through a straw. That's right. That's right. Do you like your gravy? like that creamy as well or do you like the kind of like you know oh no i like that creamy as well I, yeah. I, I, no sausage or nothing else in there no, This is no, no, straight no. just, like just, turkey just straight
1: turkey gravy. yeah that's right that is the apex predator of uh thanksgiving everything else two and three my mother-in-law makes a terrific oyster stuffing how? that was that was a staple in my house growing up. My it's dad was
0: a big oyster stew guy. Yeah.
1: I'd, I'd never had that until until I got married, and it's it's phenomenal. And then the turkey itself can't go wrong. Right, good good bird, good uh, giant turkey, and then sandwiches for a couple of days.
0: Nothing nothing changes in my world. I just want the basics. Yeah, turkey. Stuffing, mashed potatoes, smothering in
1: gravy, a lot of nice desserts.
0: Franklin, we don't even know if you're having a Thanksgiving. You could be having right. a, a, there a is, Thanksgiving There is something
1: the... in the oven, but it is not a turkey. Oh, my. That was a terrible. <laughs>
0: Franklin could be having Thanksgiving at the but hospital that's, cafeteria.
1: That's why it was cut out of last uh, year. That's probably God, so. now I remember.
0: So um, yeah, on the off yeah. chance that, that the, uh, the arrival messes up the timing, but um, what's it going to look like for you? You're you're making Thanksgiving dinner this year. I'm making, because we won't be traveling to North Carolina,
2: so for the first time ever, I'll have to do something. You won't Um, have to hunt your own dinner for the first time ever.
0: Like You go to a grocery store like normal
2: people. Yeah, it's going to be weird. In fact... If we bump up right against Thanksgiving. We may be going to uh, Mister Johnny Rivers, the, uh, the Four Rivers of the Coop, to secure our Thanksgiving meal. I'd love to be able to go to Bojangles for my fried turkey, but they're no, they're no longer in this market. Come on back, guys. Yeah, I know it should be a good time.
0: All right, let's do the show.
2: May I help you? We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm gonna have to go supersize. We need a political revolution and we will
0: make America great again. From the home office of Align Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Coming up on the podcast, the mandated scheduling issue is at a critical inflection point, and like the trajectory of paid leave, leading thinkers on the right are beginning to weigh in and are moving the issue to the center of the political spectrum. We interviewed Dr. Aparna Mathur, resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, to discuss the current state of play of the issue and the role that the business community should be playing in finding the sensible center of the issue. We'll talk about that story and wrap it up with a legislative scorecard. So as I mentioned in a uh, previous podcast uh, last week, as a matter of fact, we talked a bit about the scheduling issue and where the kind of life cycle of that issue is going. And we are joined today, Franklin, on the pod by one of the, one of the experts in the field of-, uh, S- of this Someone day. who actually knows about this. Instead someone of, who actually really knows. Instead of us. Exactly. Just, yeah. Yes, exactly. Dr. Aparna Mathur is the uh, resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and has done extensive work in this and other kind of labor business model related issues. Uh, we were big fans of your work, Dr. Mathur, with uh, the Brookings Institute on paid leave. and think that significantly changed kind of how that issue was viewed. Once a once an, an organization like AEI weighed in on that issue, especially in a joint publication with Brookings, it really gave a different tone context. And I think since then, we've seen other business friendly or conservative, however you want to label it, give more legitimacy to the issue and say, hey, we've got an issue here and we need to solve for it in a way that makes common sense for everybody involved we kind of view the scheduling issue kind of in that same context so we really appreciate you uh, joining us today on working lunch and so can we talk a little bit about um, you wrote a blog post for the institute for family studies which which we read and and thoroughly enjoyed and the data the background for that study uh, is predicated largely on a study of over thirty thousand workers. Can you talk a little bit about that and what, what those findings were when you were doing that research?
3: Right. Well, thank you so much for having me on and thank you for your kind words. I really appreciate them. Yeah, so uh, I started looking at the issue of uh, predictable schedules and who it affects and there's a recent study um, that came out of Berkeley that surveyed about 30,000 workers and they tended to be in retail and food services industries because those are the industries that are the most likely. To be affected by these types of irregular schedules or what they think of as just in time scheduling. So, the way just in time scheduling works is that employers really try to, uh, you know, match demand for their business with worker availability. So, they'll try to match uh, worker hours with what's going on with, uh, you know, c- customers coming into their business. And what that means is that if you have periods of peak demand, you know, you suddenly need a lot of worker hours. If you have periods of lean demand, you also have to cut down on the people that you're employing or or that are there to provide those hours. And so what that what that means in practice is that a lot of these workers face very unpredictable schedules. They are, uh, you know, often they are not told about their schedules, you know, about a week in advance is the earliest that they might get to know about it. And what that means is that for these families, Families, it becomes really hard to budget for expenses. You know, if you're not getting hours at your workplace, you're not getting the money. That means you don't know what your budget looks like week to week or month to month. It also wreaks havoc with childcare schedules. You know, how do we, how do I plan to leave my child with somebody if I don't know what my work schedule looks like? And so, what that study shows is that there, you know, it leads to not just unpredictability in the workplace, but a lot of unpredictability in the home as well. And, and workers uh, are really struggling to, to figure out how do we make this work-life balance work out when we don't know exactly what our what our work schedule will look like. And I think at the same time, you know, employers are also doing this for business reasons. And so we need to sort of look at both sides of the issue and figure out what's, uh, you know, how do we make this work out for, for both sides of the puzzle?
2: You know, the survey, and it was a huge survey, like 30,000 workers, but The survey, did it find that particular, you know, pockets of the economy, particular groups of employers were more more engaged in these practices? And then I guess what were some of the employee attitudes in those segments as well?
3: Right. Now, in terms of which industries are the most affected or which employers, it is the, you know, the restaurants, the retail food services leisure and hospitality industries that often tend to have these schedules and it makes sense you know if you're a restaurant and you anticipate christmas and you anticipate peak demand you're going to try to get a lot more workers coming in if it's uh, you know a leaner period or, or a season when people are not eating out as much then you know your your work hour needs change accordingly so you do find that it tends to be workers who are in leisure retail hospitality uh, typically those industries that that tend to have these schedules. Now, I also looked at, you know, data from uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics, which is sort of the, you know, the U.S. statistical agency that tries to collect this for across the country, you know, not just that 30,000 survey that I mentioned earlier, but also data from the BLS. And it's really, you know, it seems like there are about 16% of the workforce that's employed in, you know, non-regular daytime schedules. So, and within that, it's about 3% that face irregular shifts. So, you know, when I look at the data, it's hard to say, well, you know, are all of these shifts unpredictable? Are all of these shifts, uh, you know, just because you have an evening shift or a a nighttime shift, does that mean that the work itself is unpredictable? Uh, So it's hard to pin down that number, but I think it could vary from anything uh, as low as 3% for the country as a whole to something like 16 to 17%, uh, you know, on the upper end. And in terms of, you know, worker attitudes, now it does, a lot of times we think, or any type of unpredictable. or having sort of an irregular schedule is actually bad for workers. Uh, But, again, the BLS data shows that, you know, a significant chunk of workers actually choose these schedules because it works out uh, in terms of meeting their family needs. It could be that they're in school during the day, and so they want uh, a night or an evening shift. It could be that they have childcare, uh, you know, in certain hours, and and so they're able to do these shifts. It could be a personal preference. Uh, About 39% of workers say that, uh, you know, it's the nature of the job, which, 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 you know, it's hard to interpret whether that means, uh well... you know, we're stuck with it and we we recognize that that's the business or that's the industry we're in. But uh, a lot of workers, it seems like, you know, have a pretty good understanding of what they're getting into when they apply for these jobs. And a lot of them opt into these positions because they have other needs that these schedules seem to satisfy.
2: Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. I'm going to ask you to speculate here a little bit and, you know, feel free to go as far or as little as you want here. But, you know, there's all these kind of different forces in the the entry-level employment sector and the hospitality sector. We're struggling with employee retention, right? We have huge turnover rates. And these numbers show that at least, you know, a pretty good chunk of the workforce wants more predictability in the schedule. So, you mentioned earlier that there's probably space here for the employer to come meet the employee in some sort of workable middle ground do you care to speculate at all you know is there some magic mix in there where we're making some of these employees more happy because we're scheduling further out and hopefully maybe you know pushing up employee retention at the same time and and also maybe staving off some government intervention because we're being a little more proactive in their in this space is there anything that kind of what you, you know, it, as you looked at this study and you've looked at BLS numbers and other, where's the magic spot? Where's the where's the the middle that employers should be looking at?
3: That's- a great question I think in terms of policy so what we're seeing right now is that you know in response to worker demands for more predictable schedules you know we are seeing legislation Senator Warren uh, representative DeLauro, uh recently put in place the schedules that work act they've reintroduced it and basically what that tries to do and which is very similar to what you're seeing in you know places like New York Seattle and so on is that they're saying well if employers call in workers Workers for a shift, and then the shift doesn't materialize, or if the worker is put on call, you know, and, and the shift doesn't actually materialize, then the employer is liable to pay them, you know, a, a, a pay which is like an hourly rate of one to four hours to compensate them for the fact that they did not get called in. Or if it's a slow day and you're sent back early, uh, you know, the, the employer is required to pay the worker in order to compensate them for the fact that that work didn't happen. And, and to my mind, you know, th- this kind of legislation is really going to hurt workers in the long run because, uh, you know, one other thing that came out of the survey was that, you know, the the unpredictability is one thing, but what workers really worried about was the fact that they wouldn't get enough work hours during the week, uh, which would mean that they wouldn't have enough take-home pay, they wouldn't have enough money, and they couldn't budget for expenses that they were already anticipating. And so the last thing you want to do is to put this huge cost on employers that, oh, if you, you know, if you call the worker uh, and if you only give them their schedule, set seven to ten days in advance and you have to pay them. Well, you know, I worry that what's going to happen is that a lot of these employers are just going to say, well, you know, I, I'm not going to keep this big pool of workers on my, on, on the rolls, And I'm, you know, I'm not going to, I'm going to try to not call in these workers or not give them, you know, the opportunity to, to come in uh, for those extra hours if they materialize because there's a huge cost to doing that. And so I think any legislation that comes out has to be very careful that it doesn't actually create disincentives for employers to reach out to these workers in the first place and offer them these hours because what workers really really want is that they could get more work hours you know that would offset some of the burden that comes with unpredictability because they you know at least they would have the you know the pay compensation coming in or they would get those extra hours and the pay for those hours that would help offset their other costs so so i think the way the legislation is working out across the country could be detrimental to workers in the long run and i would rather look at policies that come out organically within firms where employees are able to go to their managers and say, look, you know, I have I need to know what my schedule looks like uh, next week. I have these child care responsibilities or I have, you know, I have these other responsibilities that I need to take care of. Can I opt in for these hours? And, And what you are seeing in the private sector, you know, some surveys by Susan Lambert show that managers do try to keep you know, try to make schedules a little bit more predictable for workers if they can. So they'll keep a, you know, a Record of workers who want extra hours, who are willing to be called in last minute, uh, who are willing to, you know, take on shifts that maybe other workers don't want. So I would love to see more of that. I would love to see employees be able to go to managers and say, you know, I I am not able to come in or I am able to come in, you know, can I get some flexibility there? So I think, you know, we need to understand that flexibility is needed both by employers and by employees. And a lot of times when employers are really relying on workers, you know, as you pointed point out they'll say well you know the turnover rate in this industry is so high that workers are just not showing up for work and that's a big reason why they keep on extra workers on call because it's you know it's also unpredictable to some extent in for them when they have people scheduled to come in who are not able to come in for some reason and so there's both the employer who needs the flexibility you know who needs workers to be accommodating and there's the employee who needs employers to be accommodating and I would rather see some of those practices come out organically within organizations, because I do worry that there is no one simple legislation or mandate that would effectively cure this problem for, you know, the millions of workers across the country. So so we need to be more thoughtful about what that, you know, legislation looks like, or make sure that employers are responding to employee needs and and vice versa, when it comes to incentivizing these practices in the workplace.
0: So, Dr. Mathura, you've also done a lot of work in the the paid leave space and you know the kind of the intellectual engagement in that space is that the issue has moved through the through the life cycle do you see some some similarities between the two in terms of i don't want to you know stereotype and say making the business case for these things but in the way that they've either developed organically politically legislatively do you see them on you know similar trajectories do you see them being similar issues or they just kind of apples and oranges
3: i think You know, I do see the issue sort of being handled in in a very similar way, at least the way it's been done traditionally. So when I first got into the paid leave space, it seemed like there was a huge case to be made for paid leave when you looked at the worker side of of the issue. When you looked at how the lack of paid leave was affecting working families and the fact that, you know, women were probably, uh, you know, quitting or or losing their jobs because they couldn't go back to work after having a baby and they did not have the that enable them to do that. And there was no, you know, not much conversation, frankly, on what is the cost to businesses of adopting these policies? You know, if why is it that as a country, we haven't moved forward on paid leave? Well, a big reason is that, uh, you know, you have to look at the issue from both sides. And so there's always the employer perspective. You know, what happens if you impose a, a new cost or a new mandate or a new policy on the business, and it, you know, it, it actually increases the cost of hiring workers, well, well, you know, the ultimate long-term burden will be borne by workers. And so when the AI Brookings Working Group that I co-direct, you know, when we started looking at the issue, we said, well, I think we have a pretty clear understanding of the benefit uh, of paid leave to working families. But I think we also need to be mindful of the cost to employers of adopting these practices. And so let's look at it from both sides. You know, let's try to come up with a number for what that cost looks like. You know, let's try to figure out if we, you know, how do we fund these policies? Who's going to, you know, know, provide pay to workers when they're on leave? Should we impose it as a new cost in the business? Do we do it through, you know, a payroll tax that that comes out of employee paychecks because ultimately they're the ones benefiting? And so I think, you know, that conversation is what really has gotten you know the right uh, like republicans and people on the right and conservatives to also now think about these policies and say well okay you know maybe maybe there is a middle ground maybe there is a way to do it in you know so that it doesn't overly burden families it also doesn't overly burden employers and so we can worry less about you know the adverse impacts of adopting paid leave policies in the country so, so i think that conversation really did change how people view these policies and has managed to get more you know Republicans and conservatives on board with paid leave, and I see that with scheduling as well. I think you know we we have to talk about the employer perspective. We have to talk about why businesses adopt these practices, you know, I, I'm not of the view that a, a lot of managers are sitting out there and just saying, well, I don't care about the worker and I'm just going to do this because this works out great for profitability. You know, I'm sure there are employers out there who think like that, but I, but I I think the vast majority of businesses are trying to figure out what's the best way to deal with this, you know, how do we make sure that the workers we, we are wanting to bring in are, are provided with a little bit more predictability, uh, you know, how do we get more predictability for ourselves? In terms of anticipating business demand, so that we can pass on that predictability to workers. So I think, again, you know, looking at it from the employer perspective as well as the employee perspective, and sort of finding that middle ground, will be key to moving this conversation forward and figuring out legislation, if it is legislation, or just you know, saying, well, what what incentives can we offer employers to to make sure that you know they're, they're doing the best for their employees and that employees are benefiting from uh, you know schedules that actually work for them. So I think, you know, that conversation has to start. Instead of pitting businesses against workers, I think we need to figure out policies that will mutually benefit both sides of the equation.
0: Well, I couldn't have said it better myself. That's why we invited you on the podcast. That's exactly what what we've been trying to forward is a conversation that says, hey, you know, this is a reality, but how do we get there in a common sense way? How do we get there? And you hit the nail on the head, you know, the employees in this industry that they will be the first to tell you that flexibility is incredibly important to them. So we don't want to diminish their flexibility. We want to protect employer flexibility. We want to protect employers' ability to offer jobs in the first place and not be constrained with that. And so, yeah, for, for those policymakers that are willing to depoliticize the issue and, and are serious about outcomes, you know, that, that's where the conversation needs to be. So, you know, first of all, we thank you for being on the pod. We encourage you to continue being a voice in this space. We, we here in this office think you greatly impacted the paid leave conversation conversation we hope you have the same impact on the on the scheduling conversation as well want to just again thank you uh, for coming on our podcast and showing my colleagues what a fellow University of Maryland graduate sounds like so thank you doc <laughs> Thank you so much uh, for having
3: me on really enjoyed this conversation thank you
0: Take care So, Franklin, I was—I had high hopes for that for that interview with Dr. Mathur, but um, that far exceeded what what I was thought we'd get out of it. She is quite clearly trying to make us aware that hey, this issue isn't going anywhere. And B, there's a role to play in business. There's a common sense way for businesses and workers to figure this place out that satisfies everybody's needs.
2: Yeah. And it's, it's really interesting to talk to people, know what they're talking about. I'll tell you that.
0: That's something new for so, us. Yeah, it's a total change you know, up. Yeah. So what's your what's your take? My big takeaway
2: is we got to be participating in these conversations. And I, I think that's her guiding star her north star you know from an employer perspective to be participating in the paid leave and the scheduling conversations to be explaining the impacts to as an industry and as you know to have the employer community participating in a meaningful way and love to have her come back in the future you know maybe after the white house summit december 12th which is the next big thing in the National paid leave conversation. Um, have her talk a little bit more about paid leave, and also have her talk about how that kind of builds into this whole portable benefits conversation that's been going on around the country. And yet again, it's another political conversation where the employer community, by and large, in any meaningful way, has kind of been sitting sitting out. So it was a lot to take away from it. But I think the biggest thing was, you know, kind of her call that we need to get in there and mix it up.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a familiar refrain, and um, you know, I think she she made the point. That it's we're either going to decide our own fate, it's going to be decided for us, especially with regard to the, you know the forward the other subject on affordable benefits. So.
2: The other thing too is um, that study was thirty thousand or survey thirty thousand persons. That came out of UC Berkeley. Yeah, UC Berkeley. And uh, it's just easy, I think it's easy for us to sometimes dismiss that. Clearly she did not, right? And she went and cross-referenced that data with BLS data, right? And has come to her own conclusions independent of that information, which, you know, it seems like holds up some of that information. So anyway, it's just good to have someone that has, that is an economist, that's in this space, that can talk about this and can talk about it in a way that kind of advocates for the employer position on it, and we would be wise to
1: listen. All right, folks, it's time for the legislative scorecard where we go around the country and update you on the key legislative and regulatory developments that happened this week. I'm here with Mr. Keyfield. Wait, wait, wait. That's, that's my line. Why, oh, wait. Why are you
0: why are you playing my role? I'm supposed to I'm supposed to say that part.
1: Well, it's because it is a momentous occasion that's occurred here at Align Public Strategy. What we teed off earlier in the podcast. It happened. It happened. In it the happened. middle of our podcast, that's right, production that's right. it happened. Franklin had to head home, head to the hospital for the birth of his second daughter. So It, it happened. That's right. And Carson, her name? Emma Jane Coley. Emma Jane. Yeah, happy happy and healthy. And so uh, Franklin was with us for the beginning of the show. He is not going to be with (laughs) us the rest of the way. I'm sliding into the Joe role here wow. where I can play kind of, uh, you know. Well, the... I can't do
0: the Franklin role because I have proper, you know, grammar and well, that's diction. Well, that's true. So, so
1: I'm going to be the the Tim Russert of uh, Align Public Strategies today uh, and kind of kick off the conversation. So big congratulations to our partner, Franklin. And let's get into the legislative scorecard. So as always, we start with wages.
0: So busy week in uh, in the wage world uh, at, the, at the state and, and more importantly at the local level. Colorado, we've been expecting this for some time. They un- unveiled their new overtime proposal if you remember uh, the Fed has come out with a new proposal the the, the federal level $36,000 a year but the Colorado level is actually going to be closer to 57,000 almost $58,000 by 2026 so we've talked a long time on this pod about states especially blue states blue trifecta states creating their own overtime threshold levels Washington State California New York Colorado has unveiled theirs almost $60,000 so far in excess of the federal
1: is is one of the
0: higher you know standards in the country yeah right now. it's going to be top five for sure yeah so something to watch it's not a final rule yet but it's it's pretty darn close pivoting over to pennsylvania this is something we talked about on the pod last week and you know they've been kicking around compromise minimum wage legislation forever but uh finally got some some movement a compromise bill 925 an hour by 2022 passed uh the senate which is run by republicans democratic governor Republican legislature. 925, not a very high level, obviously, in the in the scheme of things, but still a significant milestone. Uh, there were a couple of trade-offs the governor's been after, like Colorado, we just mentioned. The governor has proposed a high overtime, changing the overtime law there. To get this minimum wage bill through, he had to concede on that. So there'd be no change to the overtime law. He had wanted to go to 15, he only got to 925. He wanted to eliminate the tip credit, that's out. So it passed the Senate pretty overwhelmingly. It still remains to be seen whether it will pass the House, but it, it looks like the number is so low, the concessions so much, and the the margin of passage in the Senate so high that it'll be really hard for Pennsylvania House Republicans not to pass this. So we can expect a, a minimum wage bill to make it through the process in Pennsylvania. But at 9.25 an hour, I doubt anybody's hiring anybody at 9.25 an hour. So we'll have to see. Right, the
1: market's already taken care of. The market's already seen.
0: So uh, pivoting to the local level, which I which I mentioned earlier, Chicago. You know, we've been talking for some time about changes to the minimum wage law in the mayor budget she walked she backed off from eliminating the tip credit altogether in in her budget plan that plan passed its first kind of step in the process this week and so it continues on there'll be a final vote probably on the budget maybe after thanksgiving the week after thanksgiving we think but that should go on kind of unabated in Chicago. Denver, we've been talking for a while about raising the minimum wage to, to 15 dollars by 2022. It passed its first reading Monday night in the city council, and so that seems to be moving on. Obviously, there's litigation from the Colorado Restaurant Association, whether the city has the authority under the new state preemption, appeal of the preemption law. So that litigation will continue. Uh, and speaking of litigation, what legislative scorecard would be complete without something about an attorney general, Carson? N- not one. I can't
1: remember one we've had when we haven't talked about AGs. So we talked about
0: this in in New York last week with Grubhub and the city of New York going after Grubhub and, and uh, other platforms. Uh, the attorney general for Washington, D.C., not many people know that Washington, D.C. has, has their, its
1: own attorney uh, general.
0: Uh, Carl Racine is suing DoorDash and saying that, that the way they were handling tips, they were taking part of the tips that, that the customer gives a driver and kind of putting it in a, in the house kitty without the proper disclosure to customers. Customers thought that, you know, if you, you delivered something, I was right. giving you five bucks, that you were getting all that five bucks.
1: We, we know that in that in that AG world, right, there's a lot of sharing of, you know, is this something that we could see other attorneys general take absolutely. up? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and, if, and if he's successful in
0: uh, forcing a significant settlement with DoorDash, you can see a bunch of attorney generals jumping on that.
1: All right, moving to uh, paid leave. We've had five Democratic
0: presidential debates and the, the SEIU has really been, you know, in the labor community in general, really been dominating the kind of conversation with pay equity and gender equity and income inequality. And it's funny that paid leave has not found its way onto the, the platform, so to speak. But that all changed this week. Paid leave was a big part of the Democratic uh, presidential debate. Everybody had their own plan. Uh, the important part is the minimum baseline. No one was at fewer than, than I think, three, 12 weeks, three months of paid parental leave. So you know, as we've said before, you know that issue has left the building. Yeah, I
1: was going to say, if, if we were able to go back into a time machine even five years ago and I'd asked Joe Kefauver, you know, would presidential candidates, all of them, be talking about, on the Democratic side, be talking about paid leave, you just said no way. Well, you know why I would have said no way? I would have said no way
0: because I thought the issue would have been resolved by now. Yeah. I didn't realize it would be still lingering out there. I thought there would be been some resolution on this issue by, by then. So you, you never know. Yeah, what's going on with uh,
1: scheduling and in particular lows?
0: So it's it's interesting that, you know, in the wake of the, the interview with Dr. Mathur that we had earlier in the podcast, we talked about, you know, what companies should be coalescing around, what companies should be, where's that sensible center that companies should say, hey, we, we can live with X, Y, and Z, but this A, B, and C stuff is, is nonsense, and, and how do we resolve this issue? Well, under the guise of tin ear our friends at Lowe's have decided to institute a new scheduling system called that they refer to as customer centric, which means kind of the staffing equivalent of surge pricing for Uber. And no pun intended, stocking up, but staffing up during high times and releasing people during low times. Sounds a lot like on-call scheduling that got us here in the first place. Yeah, This is what the retailers were doing 10 years ago, which is why we have the scheduling issue. So in 2019, we've got a company, a major employer going, hey, I got a brilliant idea. (laughs) Let's do some customer centric scheduling. And so there's a bunch of headlines that we get about employees like they've no idea when they're being scheduled, right. they're being yanked around. It's like I cannot believe that somebody's going back. Right. And and that and, and,
1: and, and believing that that sort of messaging it, you know, in a positive way is 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 gonna kinda whitewash the, the challenge. <laughs> it just
0: Bizarre, just bizarre. So uh, that's kind of some disappointing news. Yeah. Well,
1: and and, you know, week before Thanksgiving, it's also been a busy, uh, busy one in labor policy as well.
0: Yeah, always busy in labor policy. Uh, We talked about last week what was going on with the apprenticeship programs and how there were some accusations of some, you know, somewhere between malfeasance and redistribution of appropriated monies for apprenticeship programs. Uh, One of the labor undersecretaries was on Capitol Hill this week defending the apprenticeship programs in general and the industry recognized apprenticeship program. IRAPs in particular. Again, you know, the the, the NRA, the Education Foundation, National Restaurant Association, as well as American Hotel and Lodging are using these IRAPs. We think it's a different kind of part of the building, but again, big hearing this week, they're going to be more. So if if you're involved in that program or you're thinking about being involved in that program, something you you really need to follow. And then this week, you know, every fall, Um, The administration puts out their kind of fall regulatory agenda, and they're chock full of their kind of goals and, you know, objectives for the next six months. One of them was that the EEOC may adopt uh, some pay data reporting requirements for employers via, via the rulemaking process, and so the agency may publish an advance notice of, of rulemaking uh, as late as next September on this pay data issue. Similarly, on the joint employer issue, the administration announced that within the NLRB, with the EEOC, with the Labor Department, they're gonna go and tighten up all these rules and regs around the joint employer standard. And it's obviously the Trump administration, so they're, gonna, they're gonna try to make it much more difficult to make that joint employer linkage and that joint liability. So they're gonna be working diligently over the next couple of months to try to tighten those rules up so it's harder to bring those joint employer suits. So we'll see how much gets through. Again, all those agencies have a budget. Budget comes through Congress, starts with the House, House controlled by Democrats. So again, this is stuff on an agenda. This is what they're going to be pursuing from a policy perspective, but who knows? Uh, what will come right. through the end of the process. Right.
1: And coming down the stretch here, you know, the hits just keep on coming from McDonald's.
0: You know, I, mean, I said like two weeks ago on a pod, you know, what would a week be complete without, you know, somebody filing a lawsuit against McDonald's? And yet, right on right on cue, McDonald's uh, has been the subject of another ongoing lawsuit. And the reason I we, we keep bringing up McDonald's it has nothing to do with the company per se. Right. It's a, it, it's a not a cautionary tale, but it's a demonstration of how a union organizing and reputation campaign play out and all the different pressure points and all the different tactics and so we keep highlighting this so that brands will understand when they're seeing these things and, and, and when they read about mcdonald's what's what's actually behind what's going on behind the curtain and so what's happened this week is a group of uh, 17 workers in chicago uh filed a lawsuit against mcdonald's alleging a corporate culture of workplace violence and a lack of protection for frontline workers There's Been a lot of headlines about scuffles with Customers and you know this, that, and the other. The McDonald's continue to get, get run out of the headlines, and so here the here's the labor community with some you know local trial lawyer filing a suit. That there's right. some culture right. of violence. It's a bunch of crap. It's nonsense, but it's just one more tactic of this ongoing bleeding and bleeding and bleeding and beating of McDonald's. Right.
1: And and if you're you know this week you know viral video from Popeye shows an employee fighting. If you're Popeye, you're, you're you know you're aware. You know and other brands with this kind of stuff, you gotta be aware.
0: So people when they see this stuff
1: against McDonald's you know and McDonald's is world class employer
0: and best in class in countless different ways people need to understand this is all part this is orchestrated it's all part of a broader right. campaign that. it doesn't mean that there may not be some merit to the charges there's usually some something going on in there but you know to charge the, a the systemic culture, culture right, is right. you know ridiculous of course but anyway we just note these things just so people can understand how this corporate campaign right, the is context, yeah. yeah. So so even though it's Thanksgiving Carson another busy scorecard
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, another week, another pod, Carson. Big news, Mr. Coley. We talked about Thanksgiving earlier in the show. I don't think his Thanksgiving dinner is going to go off quite as scheduled. No, he is—he
1: is definitely overwhelmed. Uh, you well, know, moving from one kid to two kids is is a challenge to say the least. And so he is not here. I'm opening up the Aligned Public Strategies employee handbook, and and I don't really see anything in paid leave. We don't so.
0: have, we really don't have a paid parental leave policy per se. I but I—I think, think our de facto, I think Franklin's de facto paid leave policy is. He gets paid and he leaves when he wants. To yeah, talk. there you go. <laughs> so there's our paid leave policy. We're very generous. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Line. So Carson,
1: you're staying home.
0: Yep. For Thanksgiving. Yep.
1: Doing the doing the big family dinner and all that kind of stuff. I'll be
0: one of the stupid people that's in airports for Thanksgiving holiday, which is you know. A recipe Crushed for disaster. of humanity. A recipe for disaster. Delays
1: of hours and hours.
0: But as a uh, programming note, we will not be uh, uh, doing a podcast next week. So we'll be our next podcast will be in two weeks, uh, the week after Thanksgiving. But uh, to everybody, to our friends, family, colleagues, clients, listeners, have a great and healthy and happy Thanksgiving. That's
1: right, Happy Thanksgiving, everybody.